Hello, and welcome to Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers. By writers. To keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm LP. And I'm Will. And joining us today for week four, just found out that there are five weeks in Pride Month this year. Five Fridays, anyway. Yay, us. For week four is the inimitable Izzy Wasserstein. Welcome, Izzy. Oh, thank you so much. I'm just so delighted to be here with you. Well, we are so excited. Yeah, we're stoked to have you. Can't wait for this. Um, yeah, actually, I just, in this, I may cut this, I may not LP. I totally, you said four weeks in the fir- in the episodes I'm editing. And I think it's funny because now we realize there's five. And I think that's important. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we'll have a fifth episode this month. And that's the other thing. That's good. Yeah. Bring it on. Okay, Izzy. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you and really to dive in about your work. And this is a question we ask all of our guests when they come on. Um, And it's a fun question. So I wanted you to describe your writing career in three words, and it could be completely unrelated, whatever comes to mind. Okay. Well, I I suspected you might ask me something like that. Um, So I had an answer prepared for a different version of that question. This one is tricky. Um, But I think um, three words, I think unexpected, uh, queer, and messy, maybe would be the words I'd pick. I love those Uh, words. Thank you. Let's talk about the first one, unexpected. Why did that come to mind? Well, I started my writing career as a poet. And that was what I did for a long time. And then I sort of rediscovered my love for speculative fiction. And I was like, I remember very distinctly um, hearing uh, Sarah Pinsker read a story at an event and like the top of my head exploded. And I was like, oh, you can do this with speculative fiction? Like, I want to think about what I could do with speculative fiction. Uh, And like, I still write poems occasionally, but I've really shifted my focus in that direction. And that's been what I've been doing. And at no point did I like set out where I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I just really loved it and really loved like the queer speculative community. And uh, and that's sort of how I ended up writing all these words of fiction somehow. That's amazing. And what about queer? Well, I'm one of those people who was uh, was a little slow to figure things out, right? I was in my well into my 30s before I realized that I was trans, and quite a bit after that before I first found it in me to voice that to anyone but myself. Um, and I knew that I was queer before that, but it was sort of a um, an abstract thing, right? I was presenting as a man. I was ma- I was in a relationship for a long term with someone who is, uh, presents as a woman. It just wasn't like an active part of my experience. Um, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait, this is why I've sort of felt at a remove from my own life for so long. And when I transitioned, all that just sort of like these like explosions of like, oh, this is what it feels like to to live the way that's actually right for me. And what about messy? Oh, I'm just messy. You know, I'm (laughs) like, I'm, I, 
I don't. I guess I don't live for drama, like to that to the extent that that intersects with messiness. But um, I am someone who uh, always has piles of notes and papers around. I uh, manage to seem like I have it together for my students, and then like mostly in my head, it's like um, the "this is fine" dog all the time. Which is also partially just like living with anxiety, right? Um, but yeah, I just think that I'm, I just think I'm, I'm super messy. And when people don't know that about me, I'm like, oh, good, you don't know me well enough to know how messy I could be. That's I get it, especially about the anxiety part. Um, I think all of us in here have dealt with oh, some yeah. type of anxiety for sure. Um, oh yeah. So tonight we're going to talk about uh, your short story collection, All the Hometowns You Can't Stay Away. And I wanted you to pitch the collection to our listeners. How do you describe it? You know, I always, I, I struggle with this. I've, I've been asked this before and I always struggle with it because, uh, you know, short story collections come together. At least for me, this came together in a way that was, uh, with some trial and error and thinking about what I had and, and how it came to get and how it fit together, I suppose. Um, but the way I like to think about this collection and pitch it is, um, it is about uh, often messy and problematic queer characters doing their best in really terrible circumstances and sometimes punching Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> I like I that. that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, um, and then LP, you can ask you can ask the next questions. But I just wanted to let everyone know. So, we're going to dive in specifically with three short stories of yours. One of them is the title "All the Hometowns You Can't Stay Away," and then the next ones are going to be um, "Case of the Sewn Museum Theft." And then Blade Stones and The Weight of Centuries. Uh, so they're the three that we're really going to deep dive. But we are going to talk about the, co- uh, the collection as a whole. And I'm going to go right over to um, LP for this one. Go ahead. All right. So your collo- collection circles ideas of returning home and creating a better version of home. Was that like a design choice? Or do your works gravitate toward that th- those themes broadly? And in neither case, you know, how do you think you ended up in that literary neighborhood? Yeah. I mean, I think like the uh, obsession with home in my work, uh, which is there and it was not something like I set out to cultivate, but is, you know, I mean, I don't know how you all feel, but I'm a big believer in like the kind of stories that you need to write are going to reveal themselves to you. And you might as well not pretend that they're not because like if you try to write things that you're that aren't the stories that you need to be writing, they're not going to get written or you're, they're going to get written and you're not going to be happy with them. And I, so I let, I've lived most of my life in Kansas and almost all of it, in fact, in Topeka, Kansas, um, which is a town that weirdly, if, if it's known at all, it's basically known for being home to the Westboro Baptist church. It's like the, the like most homophobic uh, people, on the planet maybe um and when i left i was like not only am i never coming back to kansas i left for grad school i was like i'm never coming back to kansas and i'm never gonna write i'm not gonna be one of those writers who write about where they're from and within like three months of leaving the state i was writing about it again 
uh, and then I and then I came back for a job, and then have been here for what sixteen years again. Uh, uh, don't, please don't do the math on that, listeners. Like, I, I you know, or do, and and then that's fine. It's not it's not hard to piece these things together. But uh, so I think that like what it means to have a place that is like deeply meaningful to me, even if it's not a place that I've always been happy to be from and to live in is like a really fundamental part of my lived experience. And from talking to other queer folks, I think it's a common experience for lots of queer people, right? That like to both love a place or a community or something, uh, and also to know that at some level, it's not what it needs to be or what it ought to be. Uh, And so I feel like uh, the title story in particular is me sort of wrestling with like what it is to know a place so well and to not, not be sure what to do with that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that answers the question at all, but that's what I got. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I found was that um, the title story did a really amazing job of setting the tone and I didn't realize that until I was a few stories in, but like I did think it did a really great job of setting the tone of what to expect for the rest of the the collection. So I'm really excited to hear that. Um, Will you have a question? Yeah, I guess maybe more of a comment. I'm not sure yet. Uh, Whatever comes out of my mouth. (laughs) I, it's interesting that you said about going to the places that like we grew up and like having queer people exist and you know a place, you love it, but then there's aspects of it that you don't. But by sometimes staying there, that's how you can create change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my experience has been I left home and I've never moved back. And so I'm always fascinated. And in some ways, I think it takes more courage to go back to those places and to like thrive, Right. And to like change the system from the inside out when I just knew I just, I will never move back there. Just will never happen. But I also see differences of like myself because I live in New York and seeing how everyone relates to me in that aspect from back home. Like it's like like this great big, like, oh my God, you live in New York. And then you're kind of like, okay, yeah, I guess it is a cool thing. I don't know. Go ahead, Marshall. It's just a comment, I guess. It was just really interesting reading your stories because I think we see that in a couple of the stories where the characters work within the system to start creating change and it's not right away. So, okay. Yeah, and I think I have a comment too. And and yeah, I visited New York last year and it is a cool place, Will. And I did get to see you and that was amazing. Um, the but, part seeing me was best. Yeah, so I think it's funny how I live in a small town. And I grew up in a small town. I don't currently live where I grew up. Um, Some of my friends do still. Um, And I told myself I would never go back. My parents moved out. Nobody lives there anymore. But what I found interesting is that I now live in a small town again. And and that first story really spoke to me too, because I'm like constantly confronted with ways to make this little I'm going to say this little town that I live in, I, I was trying not to put something else in front of that. This little town I live in better for my kids. You know what I mean? And let them expect something that's not, um, 
what I grew up with. You know what I mean? And so I think, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I think that I don't think I have a question either, but maybe, maybe I do this. The, the first story really, it spoke to me in a way where what if you had to keep going back, like keep getting confronted with this, like how, how to deal with that. So I don't know. I, I don't have a question. It was amazing. I really love that story. Um, I, it turned out to be a comment, not a question. So well, but thank, thank you. you. Um, I mean, I, I love comments, especially if they end with praise for my work. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here for that. But yeah, I think, you know, my feeling very strongly is that people, especially marginalized people, have good reasons both to go and to stay. And I don't think that there's any, uh, I don't think that one is inherently better than the other, right? It's like the, the omelas thing, right? It's like you can walk away, right? And that has its merits, right? And you can stay and try to change things. And that's also worth doing, right? And, and like, you know, people are doing what they got to do for themselves and for their, the way their lives take them. And sometimes you got to go back and sometimes you got to be like, screw this. You will never see my face here again. You know, like, <laughs> and I think that's all, it's all valid as far as I'm concerned. For sure. Um, LP, you want to you want to ask the next question? Yeah. I mean, we're just going to dive into the conversation about, um, Oh wait, my next question. Sorry. Um, good, good idea. Uh, I was looking at the numbering system in this collection and I don't, I can ascribe a meaning to it. And I know that you like to like, let people decide what things mean to them, but we're not talking about the stories. I'm just looking at the numbering system. How did you decide how to group these? Yeah. So this is something that I learned from putting together a poetry collections. Uh, And I'm going to shout out my mentor from grad school uh, Lisa D. Chavez, um, who is amazing and really took me under her wing when I knew Jack and shit, right? Like really like I was this early twenties, uh, white kid who didn't know much about myself, much about much less anything else. And, um, and she just made a huge impact on me. And so I, I'd given it a lot of thought and, I have, a, I have a sort of a secret organizing principle for this book, and that is that there's this movement um, about loss and grief and trauma in the first section, and then radicalization in the second section, and community in the third. And it's not perfect. Like, I also, there's also like, uh, worked with Dave Ring, my editor, to figure out which stories like bounced off each other in cool ways to pair them and stuff. But in my thinking, this is like the overall narrative arc of the book, if there was one, which is really not probably. But to the extent there's something like that, it's like, oh my God, things are fucked up. Uh, I am so pissed off. I'm ready to burn it down. And then now I've burned it down. I'm like going to need a community if I'm going to do anything better than what came before. Mm. Uh, Oh, no, I was just going to say, you mentioned Dave Ring. Um, We've had him on talking about Neon Hemlock. So this question's in there. Do you care if I throw it out there, guys? (laughs) I'm just really curious. uh, We're really curious how how you came across Neon Hemlock and that collaboration started. 
you know, I had uh, submitted work and had, and David picked it for an anthology. And then I'd had, I'd worked with them in a couple other ways and just really was excited about what Neon Hemlock was doing. And from the very earliest days of my publishing speculative fiction, uh, Dave was a big supporter of mine, right? And just absolutely was somebody who I knew that I wanted to work with every chance that I got, uh, admired uh, his aesthetic and admired, uh, like, I think my favorite thing about Dave is how deep his commitment to the community really goes. Um, and I could see that from the diversity of the authors he'd pick and from the things that he was doing behind the scenes. Um, and so when he expressed interest, he knew that I was preparing to shop around this collection. And when he expressed interest, I immediately was like, yes, here, please take a look at it. Please, please, please. Yes. And then tried not to like vibrate with excitement too much while I waited <laughs> to find out if he wanted it or not. Uh, so it was just, you know, it was, uh, just this gift that he gave me of, Hey, I like your work. Could I see the full, the full collection? And I'm, I could not be more grateful and pleased that it happened that way. And yours is the inaugural collection from Neon Hemlock. Yes. And I'm glad that there's another on the way because I, my fear with all of this was that I was going to be the test case for Neon Hemlock publishing short story collections. And then, everyone who could have published them with the unhemlock and didn't get to would be like, well, that's Izzy's fault. Cause she like hers didn't, like didn't do well. It wasn't worth the, wasn't worth the time and money to, to publish. So I'm very pleased to see that it hasn't been a disaster for the unhemlock. It was not a disaster. It was definitely a success. <laughs> now, thank you. It's definitely one of my favorite short story collections that I've read in the past four years. Well, thank you so much. That, means and more to me than I'm going to be able to express here. I'm extremely... You can't respond to every compliment because I'm trying to piggyback off Will. It's so, <laughs> it's so like, it's so tightly... What I want to say is that it's tightly plotted, but I guess a better a better way of saying is that it's tightly woven. Um, like, while, while you talked about you separated by three specific, like, ideas, and obviously there's overlap from story to story, but, like, it just makes so much sense together. And then certain stories take place in the same universe. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply impressed. I am not frequently impressed by short story collections <laughs> because I feel like no, a lot of times not. they can be a greatest hits. And um, this one is curated and it, 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 it exhibits the care that went into it. So kudos. Yeah. I feel like with this short story collection, you definitely get I, the only way I can describe it. I'm a writer. I can write, I can use words um, is like the energy behind each of the stories and the way it feels like this is an author who has a really strong point of view and the characters are so relatable. There's a lot of, uh, even though while there's a lot of nuances about being queer and trans there's still this universality that really, I feel like it really, everyone should be able to read this and be like, wow, it's just really beautifully written. Um, the short stories. It's you, Izzy, Cameron Hurley, and then um, 
uh, Sam Miller. Miller? Yeah. Who there's, you're like, the three of you are my favorite short story collections like ever now. Wow. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make note of that in my, I have a little file I keep that just like nice things people have said about my work for what I'm feeling <laughs> down. And that's going right in there. Amazing. I was, I was thinking, and I, I think this is a way to keep the compliments going a bit too. Nick has a question in there and I want to kind of piggyback on that after he asked it, but um, let's, let's dive into um, all the hometowns uh, you can't stay away from. Nick, you got to ask that question that you put in there. Ha! I'm being summoned. I like this. Um, so I very much am interested in your POV selection for the first story here. It is second person, um, which sometimes I struggle with reading, but you did something very clever in there, and I'll, I'll read that part in a minute. But I wanted to know what why you chose to do a second person POV. And let me add something to that too, really quick, because I've, I think with, this is the first time I haven't put down a second person story. The first Aim time. Into that. Like, as that soon is- as the first, as soon as second person starts, I'm like, Oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I just, it turns it, I go the other direction and what the section Nick's going to read is part of it. But, um, but I think it's has to do with the story itself. So yeah, go ahead and expand on that, please. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, I was, I, I misunderstood. I'm happy. Oh to... no, I was just going to say, you can answer his question. I'll stop gushing about the fact that I didn't put it down. Um, but yeah, why did you choose second person for this, for this story? <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's, there's a, like a, there's like the, the highfalutin, like, well, this is my craft answer. And then there's, the, there's a second answer that's equally true. So I'll give you the, the second answer that's equally true first, which is I'm happiest when I'm like, taking on some entirely arbitrary uh, craft choice for a story um, and just being like, no, I'm going to tell a story that does this, right? I'm going to tell a story in the like collective first person or whatever. Um, And so part of it was just like, I was like, well, what is, what would a satisfying second person story look like to me? Um, And then because part of this, this story for me is about, the ways that like our past can feel like we've been locked into something and simultaneously there are all these other ways we could have gone. Uh, I think there's like, I wanted, I thought it made sense to have the sort of somewhat coercive tendency of second person made sense in a story about like, is it possible to stop going home? Is it possible to go home? Uh, So that was sort of where I was at. In terms of like, what did I want the story to do? Oh, I like that a lot. I Go ahead, LP. So, oh no, Nick, you want to read the part first? Yeah. So I, it's sorry, LP. It's a two-part question here. Um, <laughs> so what I really liked um, that it made it not feel like second person. You have this line in parentheses, and I'll read it here. It says, "By you hesitate, I mean I'm hesitating." We all do what we must to survive returning home. If I say you're the one doing this, maybe I'll believe things unfold as they must. That was the key line in there for me where I was like, I'm hooked. I'm way more invested into it now. And now I'm reading this as a self-therapy piece. 
<laughs> I really love that line. What kind of made you kind of throw that one in there? Did that originally was your intention to have that line in there to change how people were viewing the narrator here? Uh, I love that question. Uh, and I'm so glad that, that you, that you liked that part. You know, I think that was actually one of the last things that got added to the story. And it got added because I was thinking about conversations I'd had with friends and with um, Iori Kusano in particular, uh, whose work I'm a huge fan of and who is a lovely human being. And, you know, they had talked with me a lot about what they saw as the challenges of second person and the ways that it could lead the reader to, to places they didn't want to be in a way that wasn't super effective or super great in some ways. And so I included that in part because I wanted the story structure to be like, I wanted to go be, to pull back the curtain and let a little bit of the, of the, my thinking about what the structure of the story was doing be revealed there. Um, and in part, cause I was like, Oh, I think they all like this particularly. Yori will like this particularly if I include this in the story. Definitely a favorite part. LP. I just want to go ahead and go on record on the podcast and say I think y'all are whack because this story was like I knew he was about to talk smack. I knew he was about to talk smack. I knew it. It is what it is. The second I saw your hangover, I was like, he's about to talk shit about us not like a second person. Go ahead, please talk. Actual comment for for (laughs) for experimentation, but I just needed to say that first because like y'all just need to get your shit together. Like second person is here to stay. You're gonna be okay. Put it down. You're gonna miss something, and it's fine. All right. Now that now that I've dismissed you, um, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I love that you saw second person in, in this story because I think it makes so much sense when you're a, when it's a, a character talking to themselves and about themselves, and they're actually encountering themselves in different spaces. Like it, to me, it just it it would make more sense than any other whatever. But but I also really liked. Um, because you refer to that as uh, as 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 second person plural, right? Uh, no, I uh, I was thinking about um, the good mother's home story as as a first person plural. Uh, I, I led you into that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that was such an amazing use of first person plural that I'd never seen before, and the way it was deployed with it, it created a culture in addition to like letting each of the young women shine and. I, I don't know. I just love that. We're not going to talk about that story in depth, but I, I just thought it was very creepy and it kind of took me out. Okay. Go ahead, Will. So with all the hometowns you can't stay away from too, when you were creating it, was it the idea of working in parallel universes, um, like at the forefront? Like how did the creation of the story come to you? You know, I, I'm going to do my best to, to give you uh, the best answer as I remember it with the major caveat here that my long-term memory is poor and my long-term memory of anything before lockdown is like, haha, who knows? Um, but I, I was really, you know, I really wanted to think about like what it meant to sort of confront the choices that you'd made and the ways that your life had spun in certain directions because of things that you'd done, some of which you might regret, some of which might have been really hurtful to people. Uh, but also just like the sense that at some point 
but that my feeling anyway is at some point like you have to make a choice and you and there's limited benefit to you know trying to imagine what would have been different if you'd made a different choice but also like i don't know about you all but like you know uh my the way my anxiety manifests means i can't help but thinking about all the choices i made or just like worrying that the dumb joke i said with my friends like didn't land or whatever um so you know i mean uh i think the protagonist in that story is way cooler than i will ever be but we have in common this like obsession with wishing we could go back and tinker with the past in some way or and you know go to an alternate reality where you just did the thing right in the first place do you feel like writing the story had helped you release anxiety sometimes or writing in general Oh, that's a great question. I think so. I think, you know, two things that I don't always like to do while I'm doing them, but that I know I'm the best version of myself when I'm doing is regular writing time and trying to go out for little jogs. Like, I know I'm happier when I do those things, and I'm not always doing them. But so I think in that sense, like, I'm even when I'm furious with the story, the, when I get to the end of a story, I always feel great. When I'm like, okay, I did the thing, now it's ready to send out. That's a good feeling. Uh, even if in the middle of it, like you ask any of my friends, they'll tell you like, oh, Izzy's gonna probably have a meltdown about this story at some point. It's just that kind of story. Like it's coming. Um, we'll have to deal with her like being on our, in our mentions, being like, I'm doomed. What am I doing with my life? Um, so, you know, I mean, that's, it's, that's a really fair observation about me. I feel like that's the life of an artist, you know, it's, it's just when you're creating and making stuff, I feel like that's just what we go through. Um, any other questions about the first story casting crew? Yeah. Um, go for it. Multiverses are particularly au courant at the moment between the next phase, phase of the MCU uh, everything everywhere all at once being a juggernaut that took over the world, right? Um, and, you know, while we're seeing these things in real time now, this this collection is a year old. So I'm curious, um, what led you to a multiverse story versus any of the other stories that it could have been? Yeah, you know, time travel stories tend to frustrate me unless they're not taking themselves too seriously. Um, like it has its problems, of course, quite a few of them. But one of the things that uh, Back to the Future does is like the central conceit of like the the photograph fading away, like it, that doesn't make any sense. Like if you stop to think about it for three seconds, it's like, well, why would they fade out instead of just disappear where the past changes, right? Yeah. And, but like whatever, it makes it makes visual sense for the movie, so it works, right? And like, but like I can't, I don't know, I. Time travel stories give me a headache and it's, they're fun for me to read, but I didn't want to tackle that. Whereas like, I feel like there's something about my experience of queerness that fits really nicely with multiverse stories. Uh, and I think that it's knowing that like, right. If I'd grown up differently, um, maybe I'd known that like 
being trans was a thing someone could be when I was younger and wouldn't have felt like I spent my entire young adulthood, like not understanding myself and not being in touch with who I was. And so, you know, stories about like, well, somewhere out there, there's a version of somebody who like just did the damn thing. Uh, I think had a ton of appeal for me. I love that. I think sometimes it's like we look back and, um, especially grown up queer, like you grow up and be like, wow, I just didn't have the language um, to know those things. And it's kind of like, I always think about, you know, like when you, when I personally write, I always write for the younger version of me to be freer and to feel loved, you know? And I, it's constantly like in my work, I think I've realized that I'm, I'm constantly writing for that younger part of me so that they can heal. Cause sometimes when I look back at the things I've been through, it's like I'm grieving for another person Mm. and I'm, and I'm trying to write to heal that part, that person, because today I'm fine, but I know that version of me back when I was a kid was not okay. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I frequently, just think about like how one of the things I want is to just like hold some grace for young Izzy. It's like there was so much that she was fucking up about and she didn't know it and she didn't even have the tools to know it yet, you know? And it's like, I I think it's either be angry at that self for me or have empathy for her. Um, and so I'm, you know, I I prefer empathy to anger most of the time. Yeah, I think, you know, and uh, our other co-host, Brent's not here today, but I feel like what I've learned from Brent is that the moments that I could get angry with my younger self, I don't deny it and I transform it into justice. I take that maybe that anger that I could have for myself and instead transform it into something productive like justice while it's thinking about the rights and the wrongs in the world and then trying to make them right. That's what I feel like he's always taught me. Um, All right. I want to segue into our next short story, the case of the stone museum thefts, which I I love this story. love this fucking story (laughs) so much. Um, I just really want there to be a whole book series with this character. So, um, my first question, sorry, I have to look at my question because I made it so in-depth. Um, all right. So the case of the Stone Museum thefts. I look at it as a, it's a, the characters are great, but it's also about culture and the robbing of the indigenous people, what is rightfully their own. When you were crafting this story, was there a theme in mind or was it the characters that came first? And then the kind of the theme enrolled out of those characters. You know, this is, I think, the only story of mine that I can think of where the answer to that is neither one of those things. That what came first for me was I was like, I want, this place is so weird, this museum. Like, I need to write about it. I visited there on a friend's suggestion when I was in London, and it was the, the coolest and weirdest thing that I saw in London and it was simultaneously breathtaking and strange and also like 
the I would say you couldn't ask for a clearer like emblem of colonialism and British colonialism in particular, except I also visited the British Museum where they have like a big plaque explaining why they feel like they should keep all these ancient Egyptian artifacts, right? It's oh, like, man. yeah, I get it. It's because you don't, you like them and you don't want to g- give them back, right? Like, let's just be honest about what's happening here. So it started with, I want to write about this place. And then it was, well, what do I want? Like, do I have anything to say about it? Uh, and so then it became a quest to like, I was like, I'm, you know, I am a white woman who born in the heart of America. Right. And so I'm like, I want to write a post-colonial story. And if I'm going to do that, I want, I'm going to have to teach myself how to do it because it is not from my positionality exactly or at all really. Uh, so then, so then it was just like, okay, how do I, what kind of narrator do I want? What kind of uh, plot allows me to talk about the things that I care about? Did that make you nervous? Oh my God. So nervous. Um, I mean, I had so many pairs of eyes on this. I have, this was, I have never before or since written a story that took me longer or that went through more radical changes than Sewn Museum did. Uh, and it was, uh, I, I'm really glad for it. Like, I'm very pleased with how it came out, but it was incredibly stressful, right? Like the, there's a, there's a sense in which I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have been writing it at all. It's not really in my lane, but then the alternative was, okay, well then what am I going to do? Never write about like the problems of colonialism. Cause like that, I wasn't interested in that either. You know, I didn't want to be a writer who didn't take things on if they weren't, if I hadn't been directly harmed by them. I think, like, did how did Rivka, um, am I saying her name right? Mm-hmm. Um, how did Rivka come to you? Well, you know, I'm, uh, I, I am Jewish on one side. Uh, and so Rivka and I's experience overlap quite a bit. There's other ways um, in which uh, we don't overlap. But I wanted a character who had a background that connected her to these things that she was seeing and experiencing, and that was an outsider to them in some significant way. And I had been struck by uh, the, co- the fact that the museum does, in fact, have a copy of Josephus's History of the Jews. Uh, and that gave me a way into the character to be like, Oh, what would that experience be like for her? Would it be like what it was for me to see that? Would it be different? And then I sort of worked backwards on who is she? What does she want? And what's stressing her out enough that she's going to put up with the bullshit of these like stuffy white men who want different things from her in the story, at least for a while, right? Because she's got to get paid because she right can't put food on the table at the moment yeah you know this line this made me also kind of laugh out loud and i just loved it um since no one lived on the premises this meant only the director himself could come and go as he always it seemed he pleased like that just made me laugh and i was like yeah you're right it always does seem like to be a stuffy white man um (laughs) (laughs) but you know when you when you're writing outside of like 
your culture and your gender or anything, like you're writing the other, someone who is not you. When you were writing this, were you like, I have, if I'm going to put this out in the world, do I have to, um, will you accept even the negative comments that could come your way? Like, how do you, as a creator, you know, view that say if you've gotten um, negativity? You know, I have been fortunate in that when I, when my work has gotten heat, it's mostly been from people who I was delighted to piss off, right? Like right wingers and stuff like that. Um, I am sure that the time is coming where I will publish something and somebody either privately or publicly will call me out and be like, is he really screwed this thing up? Right. Uh, and I hope about myself that how I will respond to that is listen attentively, say, you know, thank you. I hear what you're saying um, and I'm going to commit to doing better next time. Because I think to take on things outside our experiences, we like, we will get it wrong, right? Like, um, in fact, one of the things I have noticed is that like the trans folks that I know spend so much time like seeking feedback from people who have very close but different experiences of our marginalizations in all these ways, right? So like I've had uh, people be like, hey, I, could you get a look at this? Like, um, you know, I'm trans feminine, but I use they, them pronouns. And I'd really like... Uh, somebody with she, her pronouns to look at this and make sure that I'm not screwing it up. Right. So like you do the work, you, you, in, you're in, you interact with people who you trust, who have experiences that are relevant to the story, but also like, you, you know, you got to accept that. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've got to accept that I will put it that way. I have to accept that I'm going to fuck up and that I need, that's not an excuse. It's a, but it's a reality. And so I need to figure out how to accept somebody calling me out for it with grace, hopefully. And like hoping that like, you know, that I don't know. I don't know how to end this sentence. I'm rambling. I'm going to stop. <laughs> I, I don't think you're rambling at all. I think these are, you know, it's, it's hard. It's a hard question. And, you know, we're, we're writing the other. So we're trying to do our best to learn and grow and, we will get it wrong or we will get it right. You know, it's like, it's a lot like life double-edged sword, you know? Absolutely. Marsh, you had a question. Uh, so I want to make sure we have time for the other story. Cause that other story is absolutely brilliant as well. Um, but I'm, I'm curious and I have a similar question with the others, with the other story we're going to talk about, but it's tough to do what you did in a short form. Like mystery in a short form is not, very easy in my opinion. I've tried it a couple of times and failed. Um, but what I'm wondering is when you're also talking about speculative writing in short form mystery, like how did you, and we've talked about pop culture a little bit tonight, so I'm going to throw this out at you. How did you decide on how you were going to make the paranormal aspect work in this story? Like what are the, like the rules, like you laid it out, it all flowed beautifully, but like in your head, what were you thinking as far as, okay, this needs to work this way for the story, or is this the way I think ghosts and such should interact with someone who has a sight kind of thing? 
if that makes it, sense. <laughs> it does. In this story, it was mostly reverse engineered to be like, well, what what makes this interesting? What creates problems so she can't solve this immediately? Right. Um, the and I I I like the. Like I realized very early on, I'm like, oh, security cameras are a problem for this story. Sure. So, <laughs> so you know, I mean, the the reason that that supernatural entities and ghosts don't show up on the cameras in the story is because if they did, there's no story, right? Um, right. The <laughs> and I I didn't want to write a scene where they like shatter the glass case around sarcophagus. So I was like, well, I'll just use the thing about like ghosts being able to like pass through physical objects. Uh, so on this one, it was just like a mad scramble to make the plot make sense because yeah. plot is not my strength. And I was like, uh Oh, I, what am I, what have I taken on here? Uh, and just had to sort of figure it out. And I went, you, you could have fooled us on the plot thing. Yeah. <laughs> so this might, this might be a spoiler for the listeners, but you need to read the book. Um, Sophia, is that am I saying her name right, or is it? Uh, I have I, in my head it's Sophia, but uh, Sophia. Yeah, okay, but great. I, I, it could be whatever you like it to be. No, no, I don't. I mean, I just want to get the name right. She has this really great. I feel like they have a really great rapport with each other, um, Sophia, Sophia and Rivka. Like the way that the way that it ended, I felt like oh, these two are going to be besties, you know. And so my question is, are we going to get like a book with them? <laughs> you know, I hope we will see them in some fiction in the future. I don't think I'm done with them as characters. I haven't yet figured out what the story that I want to tell about them and with them is next. But I do like them and I think they have a fun energy together and I think they're going to get up to a lot of other shenanigans. And so I do want to see what those shenanigans are. Uh, and I hope someday they will reveal to me um, if I, if, if I may get like, this is the, like the wooiest I ever get is what I start thinking about. Like, Oh yeah. My characters absolutely are like, no, Izzy, you got to do this. Like we're not going to stop bugging you. And, and those two have that for me. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that more comes from them. I love I expect that. It will. Because they they have such a great rapport together, and the way it ended, I was like, "Oh, I want more, Marshall." So, real quick, I think we might be uh, overzealous trying to get three stories in, but let's do it anyway. So, let's let's start talking about this last one because off mic, Will and I were talking about how much we love the the Blade story. So, let's let's jump into that one before we get to the end. Huh? Yeah. Do you want me to ask the first question? Uh, yeah. My, the glare is bad. I can't tell. Is it me or you? Do you have a question? Yeah, yeah go I ahead. have a question. Oh, I always have yeah, questions. Yeah, what do you yeah I know about? you do. Go ahead, buddy. Um, all right, so um, we are talking about Blade Stones and the Weight of Centuries. And to me, the story is about privilege and how um, people who are in power can help the common person, right? My question is, Talk to us about like creating Edge and the princess. You know, was Edge, did Edge come into your mind first? Was it the princess and you wanted to kind of like flip the script? Because I feel like, especially around um, 
there's been a lot of talk between nepotism, you know, and nepo babies. And I mm-hmm. kind of think of the princess as kind of like, you know, she's, she's a nepo baby, you know, but what I loved about the story is there's so many things that she doesn't know because of her privilege, you know, and then edge is coming in here and being like, Oh, you are just as much as a cog as I am because you're sheltered. Yeah. I mean, you know, I am a pretty privileged person, right? I'm someone who has, you know, all of the privileges associated with whiteness and who, you know, came up in an educated family. So I, like, I had people in my life to help me, like, pursue my own education and, you know, could help me when times were tight financially, right? I had this overwhelmingly huge privilege of being able to take on risks that otherwise I couldn't have taken on because I knew that if the worst came to worse, like, I could go crash on a family member's couch, right? Which is just this huge thing that not everybody has access to. And so, yeah, I really was interested in that. And while I don't think that uh, Princess uh, uh, Mara is the, I don't think that she came first in the story, she is the one who I, I most strongly identify with, right? Of somebody who realizes belatedly how complicit she is in a power structure that is doing immense harm and has to figure out what to do with that knowledge. Right. And I think that's a space where like people from the U S especially like white people, like, I mean, just taking up the resources that it takes to live in the U S right. Like on a global scale, that's contributing massively to climate change and to uh, inequality and all these other problems. So, uh, so that she became a really important character for me, but you know, I, but it was edge who came first because, and this is a much less sophisticated uh, answer, but it's very true. Is that like, I was like, well, you know, I very rarely get to see, trans women who get to be like awesome uh badass sword fighters and we everybody sh- should get stories about people like them being awesome badass uh sword fighters because like we all deserve that like every everybody needs i think everybody deserves to see themselves reflected in like cool sword person stories a hundred percent yeah <laughs> I think we all agree with that one. Marshall, you had a question. Yeah. So um, again, you do this thing where you have the short story and you, you have all this culture built in there, this, this empire. And then there's also a magic system in there. So you do a good job of kind of, I know it's a short story, but I, I have to feel like there's a bigger magic system where you did a really good job of, of showing us just what you needed to, but like Will said before, I really want to see more of this world. But like, um, what's your inspiration or thoughts around the magic system and how you came up with that in and making that work with the characters? And I see LP wants to follow up. So <laughs> <laughs> it's in the same universe as the crafter at the web's heart. So mm-hmm. what I loved about this story is that um, the story that came to uh, before it teaches me what I need to know about why. Um, 
her hand doesn't turn back to skin. And I was like, oh, this is great. I love this. Um, and I, I figured that out before I went and read the story notes at the end, but I was just like, oh, this is great. So we've gotten an opportunity to see this world from the the Emperor's Pyramid, but also to these streets of Traverse. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Thank you. Yeah, I, I had so much fun with this magic system. And it came out of a conversation I was having uh, with friends at, actually at Clarion West about, like, could you do second world fantasy with its own magic system in short story form? Because it's so much to have to do. And so I, with Crafter, I set out explicitly to do that. And then each time I've come back to that. So I came back to that uh, with this story. Um, and there's another story, uh, Vixen with Death Pursuing, that I thought was three of these stories was too much for this collection. But I, it's a fu- I think it's a fun story about someone who practices fox magic trying to save her girlfriend. Um, uh, and that's out in the world, too. Uh, but the, yeah, I fox just, magic. you know. Uh, yeah, because you know, in, the, in this world, right? Just in the world, threw of the fox stories, magic at us, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, what I, that's what I love about this magic system is that literally any kind of magic is possible as long as you identify strongly enough with the source of that magic, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if if what you do, like Edge, is lay awake at night dreaming of using your sword to write injustices, right? Then you will. Uh, you can do that as long as you're willing to, but like in doing that, it's going to change you. Uh, And so that's what I love about it. Right. Um, Especially because so much of the discourse about magic systems is about the cost of magic. And like, I understand from a narrative perspective, why costs like having a price to pay for magic is an important storytelling choice. Right. But I also am like, yeah, except not everything needs to be fucking capitalism here, right? That like, <laughs> um, that's a super capitalist way of looking at it is that you like you have to pay for the thing, and so I wanted a system where it's like, well, whether this system is is a, is a cost or not depends on whether what you're transforming into is a problem for you. Mm. Um, and if you're poor and trying to keep your neighborhood fed, maybe it is. Maybe you don't want to become a tree as a character in crafter does. Right. But if what you want more than anything is like to be a warrior that's available to you. Uh, And, you know, as a trans person, it's like, yeah, the, I'm always suspicious of narratives where like there's something inherently bad about change. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it just makes me think of like trans kids, you know, Mm. now that they get to grow up and see themselves. And I think a lot of Marshall of Zoe mm-hmm. about all the things that he's going to have. Marshall has a, a trans son. And I just think of Zoe so much in like a lot of the stuff I'm reading. Cause I'm like, thank God he has parents that allow him to be himself and that he is going to live in a time where he can just see the adventures that he gets to have. And that just makes me, with everything else that's terrible going on in the world with queer people and the attacks on trans rights, that the trans youth still have this sense of storytelling that they can, they will be able to use story as a means to go through 
even the awfulness of what's happening with our laws right now and be their own heroes and get to see themselves reflected in so many ways. I just, I just love that. Oh, I do too. Thank, that is so well put. I yeah, thank well you for said, sharing buddy. that. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Opie. One of my favorite things uh, in fiction, particularly speculative fiction, is that uh, is moments of authenticity. And uh, one of my uh, one of my favorite writers is Sam Asher, and like in all of his stories, there's this moment that says something about the human condition that is very like uh, is so knowable, but like had never been put into wordsable. Um, and you have one of those moments in the story. It is on page one twenty four where um, Edge says, you nobles are always the same, so concerned with the cost of change and not at all with the cost of carrying on. And I just thought that was deployed perfectly in the moment, but also just like, this is the problem incarnate, like put into like two very strong sentences. It's like, y'all do this shit, (laughs) but also like we don't even know what the cost of changing would be because we're so busy carrying on. So I wanted to point out one of my favorite lines in the book. All well, right. I, I just, I don't know. I could talk to you all night. Izzy, thank you so much for this. This has been awesome. Um, oh, and your work you is, and, and your work is amazing. Um, we have a, one more question, but before that, um, we always ask where can people find you and follow you online? What you have coming up next, stuff like that, like social media, stuff like that. Uh, just so people, we can put it in the show notes and people can um, follow you if they want. Yeah. Um, so first I'll start with what's coming out next. I have um, some stuff coming out in uh, a couple of different anthologies uh, that you can find all the details about on my website, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, but I also need to make sure that I don't leave here without mentioning that Next year, um, my uh, novella, These Fragile Graces, uh, is coming out, and I am super excited about it. It's uh, a cyberpunk uh, murder mystery in which a trans woman returns to the commune that uh, she uh, left uh, when many years ago now to investigate uh, the death of her ex-lover. One second here. Sorry. That was called These Fellow Graces, you said? These Fragile Graces. Fragile Graces. Okay, well, that's we're going to have to talk about that when that comes out. That sounds amazing. Yeah, And that's I, I should have mentioned that is with Tachyon. Um, and I'm super, super excited about it. Um, uh, it is, it's there for all your uh, messy, queer, anti-fascist needs. Um, <laughs> oh, and then uh, IzzyWasserstein.com is where you can find me. Um, I'm at on Twitter occasionally at um, uh, I-Z-Z-Y-X-E-N and on Mastodon at I-Z-Z-Y-X-E-N at wandering.shop. Uh, although I, you know, mostly stay off the bird site these days, but like I do try to keep people updated on what's going on with me there. Nice. Awesome. Uh, all right. I didn't assign the last question to anybody. Who's up? I think I'll it's take it. it. Yeah, I'll take it. Go ahead. Look, they ask so many wonderful yeah. questions. Sometimes I can just sit back and be like, oh, I'm just going to listen and enjoy this episode <laughs> in real time. It's wonderful. So this is our favorite question. Well, at least one of my favorite questions to ask here at the end. But what keeps you writing? Love that question. You know, 
what keeps me writing is that there are lots of things, but one of the big ones, and like maybe this is a thing I shouldn't like admit when things are being recorded, but when I'm really low, which does happen, and there are times where like my life is busy and I feel no creativity and I'm not writing and uh, I feel pretty miserable. And one of the things that always helps is I'm like, I have friends and community that will notice if I'm not doing the thing. Mm. And I want to remain part of that conversation. And frankly, I don't want to look my friends in the eye and be like, no, nah, I gave up. Like, it was too hard. I stopped, right? Like, you know, I, I just decided, you know, to pick something entirely random, not at all to do with the date when we're recording. I just decided I was not going to try to write. I was just going to play Diablo 4 for two months straight. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if I didn't have a community, like, and, you know, I may, I may do a little bit of that. I'm not, don't, maybe not, but. It means okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, for me, a big thing that keeps me writing is, like, I want to continue to do the thing and talk to people who are doing the thing and read their words and try to write things that the people that I most admire uh, are going to like, try to write things. Right. Like this, I, I've said this before other places and, you know, if like cishet people like my work, that's really cool. And I'm glad, but every time I sit down to write, what I'm trying to do is do justice to the queer community and to the trans community. And so when, you know, I, I just often enough, I get, I get those little jolts of like, Oh, something I wrote meant something in a way that, that people, and now I'm rambling again, but that when I was a kid and in, and to this day, I'll read things and I'm like, Oh, all I want in life is to move someone the way this moved me. Right. Like I want, like for me, uh, the end of, uh, the last page uh, of Left Hand of Darkness is like one of my all-time favorite endings of anything. And it's like, it recontextualizes what you've seen and it's just really powerful. And I'm like, you know, what I want is to approach someday like the giving someone the emotional hit that I get whenever I encounter that. Uh, I look, can I, hug you. I, I know. With permission <laughs> right now. I freaking, this has been such a good interview and I really appreciate you coming on. Like I'll, I'll douse you with compliments. Now it's, I love that you came on and were able to share and talk about your stories and they're so impactful. And I really love that you are putting yourself out there and trying to be a hero uh, in yeah. some way to represent trans folks. And I love it. It's, I'm tearing up over here. So I'm going to move on to the next person. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I just want to, and like what Will said earlier, it's, it's, you know, with my kid and stuff, I'm just, I'm so appreciative of what you're doing. So I can't wait to share your stories with him one day. He's, he's a little younger at the moment, but I can't, I can't wait. So thank you. Keep doing it. And we got to have you back. Talk about this cyberpunk Hello. story you talked about. Cause that sounds phenomenal. <laughs> thank y'all so much. Uh, this has been a, such a delight and I couldn't have asked for, for better and more wonderful questions. And y'all are awesome. And just like, keep being awesome, please. We will well, do thanks our so much for coming. It was fun. <laughs> we had a good time. What, what's, 
What's the pub date for your novella? Uh, I don't know for sure, but probably next summer is what we're looking at. Um, and I will crow about it as soon as I know. As soon as, as soon as that's settled, we're gonna. I'm gonna be out there hyping it and um, seeing if I get canceled for this one. That's but that's a story for another time. <laughs> Indeed. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing. 